Welcome to The Greg Bennett Show. I'm your joint host today with Chris McCormack. Today's episode, I'm both a host and the guest. Uh, Chris, aka Macca, hosts this episode and asks me questions about the podcast and then we discuss my journey and process in the triathlon world. And I discuss some of the highlights of the episodes of Year One and uh, discuss who I'd love to have on the show in the future and, and where I'd like this show to go. And, and then we move on to sort of really looking at my career a little bit, um, my journey into the sport and, and, and finding my strengths and, and when did I take control of my career and my life. And Chris and I discuss uh, the fundamentals of high-performance sport together and, and we share many stories throughout this episode. I, I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Um, some house, housekeeping before we go on. Um, please share. Um, the show on your social pages if you get the chance that would just really help me grow the show um, if you have any questions or suggestions please feel free to contact me on um, probably instagram um, message is the best way to do it and you can find me there at, at the greg bennett show um, anyway i hope you enjoy this one thanks for listening remember success comes to those who endure just one moment longer I'm so grateful for the continued support of the show from these incredible sponsors. You really do need to have these products in your life. Personally, I use each of them daily. Athletic Greens, Nutritional Beverage, Hyper Ice Recovery Tools, and the Glutathione Supplement, Continual G. What I love about Athletic Greens is its simplicity. It's delivered straight to your door and it takes seconds to mix with water. It tastes great and goes down easy. And I know I'm getting the most comprehensive nutritional beverage on the planet in one quick drink. If you're looking for one product that has as much high quality nutrients in it as possible, then you want to consider Athletic Greens. Athletic Greens is more than just a multivitamin and multimineral. It takes it to the next level, adding a daily dose of superfoods, probiotics, greens blend, and more to support the gut health, energy, immunity, and stress. And right now, Athletic Greens is giving you, my audience, a special offer on top of their all-in-one formula. You'll receive one-year supply of vitamin D and five travel packs for free with your first purchase for additional immune support. Many of the population are vitamin D deficient, including myself. I focus heavily in getting in the sun throughout the day, but when I can't, I religiously supplement with vitamin D. Adding vitamin D to your daily routine is just a great way to support vitamin D production. So if you're looking to get more out of your multivitamin and invest in your immunity, energy, and gut health, then you'll struggle to find anything more comprehensive than athletic greens. Take ownership of your health today and receive comprehensive nutritional insurance, a free year supply of vitamin D, and five free travel packs with your first purchase by visiting athleticgreens.com forward slash Greg. Again, that's athleticgreens.com forward slash Greg. Now, you'll hear me mention Normatech and Hypervolt from Hyperice in several of the conversations with my guests in this show. Many of my guests and I are using these recovery tools religiously. You really must have them in your house. Sit in a pair of Normatech boots at the end of a long day. Use the Hypervolt percussion massage device to warm up muscles and loosen hot spots before working out or anytime you have a niggling injury. They're just so easy and they're so quick and they work. Their vibrating foam rollers, thermal technology and Normatech compression systems just help you warm up faster, recover quicker and simply 
move better. Seriously, these products are the perfect Christmas gift for any family member or good friend. Get $50 off all percussion devices now, no code needed, and get an additional 10% off with code GREG10 at hyperice.com. That's hyperice.com, H-Y-P-E-R-I-C-E.com, and use code GREG10 for 10% off. I have a web address for all of my listeners who already know that one, the human body makes the most powerful antioxidants on earth. Two, the master antioxidant your body cells make is called glutathione and the human body needs glutathione to live. Three, the reason I'm addressing a select group of listeners with this web address is that once you see what these scientists in my hometown, Sydney, have accomplished, it'll blow your mind. Go check out continualg.com, continualg.com. That's C-O-N-T-I-N-U-A-L-G.com. Check it out and let them know that I told you about it. All right. Well, it's been one year of the Greg Bennett Show, formerly Be With Champions, and I've had the privilege to have the world's most wonderful conversations with some of the world's greatest athletes and coaches, doctors, entertainers, and entrepreneurs. And it blows my mind that these incredible people have been just so willing to come on the show and have a chat. And some of them I've known, but many I've only come to know from these conversations. And I'm just so tremendously grateful for all of them for coming on and, and for you for listening and supporting the show. So today's episode's a little different. I'll be joined with a guest host. In fact, I'll let him ask some of the questions. A good mate of mine, former professional athlete, multiple world champion, now businessman, entrepreneur, Chris McCormack. Chris, like me, is passionate about all sports and high performance. He's the CEO of the Manor Sports and Entertainment Group, co-founder of the Super League Triathlon Series, the president of Bahrain 13 Endurance Team. He was on episode eight of the show and an episode you, you really should go check out. But today... We'll discuss this podcast. We're going to review the year and many of the episodes. And then due to several requests, we'll look at my journey and process into the world of endurance sports and why I'm doing what I'm doing. So without further ado, welcome. Thanks for joining me on The Greg Bennett Show. Once again, Chris McCormack, how are you, mate? Good, Greg. How are you? Yeah, good, mate. It's uh, early early in Australia, isn't it, for you? Do you get up early on, you know, it's a couple of days post-Christmas? Yeah, it's, it's about time I started getting up early. That whole Christmas rush, the late nights, too many uh, too many champagnes, but it's, uh, it, was a, it was a great time. As you know, Sydney's beautiful this time of year, and we've done a pretty good job with handling all the the, the pandemic that's happened in 2020, so we, we had a few freedoms this year, which is wonderful. Yeah. Did you have uh, much family in town? We had yeah, all the families, my, my wife's side come up from Adelaide, so they were all here, my brothers and, and my father were here. So it was a really nice Christmas, really, really good oh, day. Brilliant, brilliant. Well, I had several people sort of mention throughout the year that, hey, Greg, I, I'll come on the show and interview you. I'll, I'll, you know, let's do that kind of thing. And then I was thinking about it. Well, who's the one person that I've kind of almost since the very beginning, I think you started maybe a couple of years after me, but really – we we kind of journeyed through the world of endurance sport almost at the same time. We uh, we kind of went different directions. Maybe after 2000 Olympics, you tended to go long, and I stayed short. But really, we've kind of had careers that kind of ran in in a similar direction. And I think the one thing I thought about when it was like, okay, I'll, I'll have Chris sort of do this this kind of a style of interview was your love for sport and your love for high performance. And and I know you and I have often roomed at races, and we're We've chatted all things sport and we've tried to get in each other's head before races and all sorts of things. And I, and I think when I thought about it, I was like, 
there's probably no better guy to have a bit of a laugh with and, and look at the journey um, and, and what we went through over this last 30 years than you. So I really appreciate you you coming on and um, being prepared to ask me a few questions and, and just chat, chat about the, the show a little bit. Yeah, well, I've been listening to the show. I was like guest number eight. All right. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was funny when I started the show, I, we had a little baby coming on January 14 of yep. 2020. And I told Laura, I'm going to start this podcast. And I was like, well, I need to start it sort of, you know, I think I started the first episode came out January 5th. And then I read, well, you meant to start the show with three episodes. You know, you got to launch with three. So I was like, okay. So all through November, December, I was like, interviewing so many people trying to make sure the episodes weren't outdated but the amount of people are like oh christmas is coming up and i'm like now shut up shut up you know because it's going to be coming coming out later but i had to jam in i think i did 11 episodes before our little archer was born on january 14 so then that gave me the freedom to get through sort of january february so when i interviewed you I think it was probably like that mid-december last year yeah and you were you were kind of brought out in that kind of i rolled them out over over that kind of a 10 week period um yeah so it was a while ago though that we chatted <laughs> all right number 10 you had everyone on because i listened after that I, well, I remember doing the episode with you i was in thailand and we it took us two takes to take it if you remember we had a we had a breakdown <laughs> the internet but it was <laughs> but you've had That's, mate, so yeah. many breakdowns so oh, yeah. many breakdowns you yeah. have no idea <laughs> It reminded me of my Ironman career, breaking down the middle. Oh yeah, <laughs> but no. But what have been the favourite shows for you? What's uh, you've interviewed everyone? I interviewed. I, I, I remember listening to Javier. That was a ripper show when you did Javier. Well, you know, yeah. Look, honestly, I, 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 it's very hard to pick a favourite because I feel like every single one of them, I've walked away going, "Wow," you know, whether it's. You know, obviously yourself and Crowey being very good mates, you know, through my whole life and just, just, and Whitfield and, and just guys that just good mates to have a chat with yeah. or then bringing on like a Mark Allen or a Dave Scott, who are like my childhood heroes that I'm sitting down and just, and they're just letting out and telling me everything there is to know. You know, Mark Allen was all about quietening the mind and, and actually, oh, this is something I wanted to share with you. I love <laughs> Mark Allen was all about love and the power of love and how much energy you got from love. And I don't know if you remember, you were talking about you were fueled a little bit with, with hate, yeah, you know, yeah. and it was kind of like where do we get our fuel from to be successful, you know, to become the best in the world of what we do. And, and, and I think you guys were a week apart. That's why I loved ah, about that. One, yeah. one week we're talking about love, next one we're talking about being fueled with hate. And so that was, that was fascinating. I think Hamish Carter surprised me a lot uh hamish has been a friend of mine for a long long time and and we really do we really dived deep into his sort of olympic campaign and and how awful 2000 was where he was meant to be one of the favorites yeah along with you and i that were left out whatever yeah, yeah. um <laughs> but, but he yeah hamish was amazing at that period of time but you and i oh. with, without without you and i in the race he should have won well, well i'm glad i'm glad um Butthead, yeah. Simon, but Hamish, yeah, yeah. Hamish in that period of time, how remarkable was he? He was uh, such a big performer. He, he was never off the podium, ever, in, in like that 10 years leading up to that race, and he had a shocker. I don't know where he came, 30th or something, but he talked about having to change as a person rather than an athlete, and that one I, I, I left going, I don't know, it just was a, a lot deeper than I'd given Hamish credit for, <laughs> if you yeah, must yeah. admit. It yeah. was kind of like he really, he said, look, I, I left – 2000 Olympics going, 
Simon Whitfield didn't deserve that Olympics. I deserved it kind of thing. I deserved a medal or whatever. And it's because of what he'd done previous. He's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. The person that deserves that Olympic gold medal is the one that earned it. Yeah. You, you, get, you don't get it just because you have something before. And he said he had to really change as a person. And uh, so that, that, that episode I, I really enjoyed. And, and then um, I, I, I enjoyed reaching out to different people too and not knowing what reaction I was going to get if they were going to say yes or no to coming on the show. And, and Johnny Brownlee was really fun just a few months ago. I, I said to him, Johnny, you know, what would have to happen for you to come on my show? You know, because I'm always these, a lot of these guys get a lot of requests as I'm sure you do. And, and so anytime they say yes to coming on, I'm always, you know, I, I, I feel pretty good about myself. I must admit, it feels pretty nice. And, and Johnny didn't just say yes. He was like, Greg, I've been listening to all your shows. Oh, what a treat. I can't believe it. I was like, hang on. You're Johnny Brownlee. You realize I'm the one that's meant to be starstruck, mate. You know, like, yeah, yeah, so yeah. That, that was, that was kind of epic to have just a, the new generation actually wanting to be on this show. And, and obviously, you're you're good mates now with um, Vincent Lewis, right? I mean, yeah. he's on he's in yeah. Phoenix and the Bahrain team, and I don't know, he's he's a young macker. I even told yeah. him that the other day in Daytona. He's way better looking than me. Fun. Oh, he's way better looking. I wasn't <laughs> going to say that. <laughs> way better looking. But, but he has the charisma. He has the passion. He's obviously incredibly talented and athletic, and is working hard. But his story of you know, back up against the wall that he borrowed his money from his dad and said, look, you know, rather than go to university, I've got, just give me a chance to uh, do this sport. And he said, if I didn't make it, I was at the factory with, with my dad or working at the local bike shop. That was it. Yep. And I, and I loved that story. Um, so yeah, look, th- th- I could go on and on. There's, there's actually every single episode, there's something I took away, not just from going, I like that person, that was an interesting story. But there was always just this little bit, and that's kind of why I started the show. You know, it was like this, you know, wanting to get a little bit more out of truly some of the world's best high performers, you know. Um, I think Hunter Kemper yeah. was was great. That was a good uh, one. I listened to that one. Very good. Yeah. yeah I thought yeah. he was very good at talking about process goals, yeah. versus outcome goals and that, yeah. Um, I think the quote of the, the whole quote of the year has to be, Emma Fredino, f- formerly Emma Snowsill, when I asked, what's Jan like at home and does he help out around the house? <laughs> Jan Fredino, the, the, the number one sort of guy in the world right now, and she's like, <laughs> he's like a teenager. He knows what to do, but he doesn't do it. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, ouch, but it, but it was uh, – that was that was pretty That's funny. Really, <laughs> <That's> <laughs> really, I only use that myself. I've actually used that with my teenagers. You're like a teenager. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you yeah. actually are a teenager. Yeah. But I, I think when I when I look at the year though, is um, I think there wasn't a guest that didn't talk about being consistent. Yeah, you know, and and that was the big takeaway for the year. You know, is one thing you got to have that passion there, but just keep turning up keep turning up and and that was what was extraordinary um you know and i think we but it was it was really it's been ingrained every single person there's no magic workout there's no magic anything it's just stay consistent yeah yeah. you've literally had everyone on the show who who who, who, (laughs) you have like i every time i see it on you pop up on twitter and you're like oh listen to this one i'll listen to this one there's just so many incredible people that i've had on the show i mean i've mentioned a small handful but 
honestly, it's not just the world's greatest triathletes that I've had on. I've had, you know, the world's greatest coaches, Joel Filial and, and Dan Lorang, which is absolutely amazing. Um, Cliff English, uh, Brett Sutton, Lance Watson and, and Siri Lindley, all of them just so much knowledge and so willing to share it with all of us. It was just absolutely every, every one of those episodes. I was like, wow. And then I've had some of the most incredible doctors come on. Uh, Dr. Tommy Wood has now been on twice. And every time I leave the conversation with, with Tommy, I'm like, this guy's just so incredible. He can take such complex things and, and dumb it down for me that I, I truly, truly love those conversations with Tommy. And I, I think I'm going to have him back on as a regular. Um, he's just so brilliant. Um, you know, other doctors I've had, Ara Sapaya, Dr. Ara Sapaya, his journey and his story was just, you know, forget the, the, the science and everything else we talk about, just his journey to get to where he was to me was just a fascinating episode. And, um, you know, then Dr. Mansur, when I had him on and he was reading out my, uh, you know, my DNA and my genetics, um, uh, just another brilliant man, just absolutely brilliant. Uh, and, and I felt a little vulnerable with that episode when, you know, he's coming on and reading my genetics and everything, but, but it was, it was a fantastic one. Um, Dr. Luke Bennett, no, no relation, but it, but it, but it is a good mate of mine. You know, he was fantastic talking about the, the world of formula one and, um, you know, the traveling circus basically of formula one and how they, they're able to sustain what they do year in year out and um you know and then the other sports having someone like nino Scherter come on you know eight-time world champion you know bronze silver and olympic gold medalist uh, we've never met before but he took the time out to come on the show kate courtney mark weber formula one just just incredible athletes that are doing incredible things in in other sports um and then some of the entertainers you know rich roll dan mcpherson and then phil liggett phil liggett was a real highlight for me as well you know i'm a bit of a a bit starstruck with phil liggett you know the, the famous commentator um so very very blessed i feel tremendous gratitude to all of them i i haven't you know mentioned all their names here but um it's just been an incredible year who are you chasing? Who is there left to get? Uh, oh, there's everybody. It's like I say this to Laura all the time. Look, I, the low-hanging fruit and my real passion, obviously, is is triathlon and endurance sport. And and reaching out to you, mates, and you guys has been easier. There's a few that have not got back to me. Um, a number of the women that I'm still hoping um, will feel comfortable to talk about themselves. I feel like the guys are always very willing to talk about themselves with the girls. The women, sorry, they they take a little bit more coercing. You know, even Laura, I tried to get my own wife on the show. <laughs> I was like, come on. Um, I mean, in fairness, she was breastfeeding it. You know, I my but, but I, I have felt getting the getting the women on has been a bit harder. Um, I've liked, I, I've really enjoyed the conversations that I've had um, with them. You know, whether uh, the triathletes. Um, re- you know, Gwen Jorgensen, obviously, yeah. Katie Safaris, and uh, but even like uh, Kate Courtney, you know, the world champion mountain yes. biker, blown away by her. You know, just I don't know, she's a, in her young 20s there and just somebody that really has it together, you know, a Stanford grad. Just people, yeah, some people blow you away with oh, their yeah. intellect and their athleticism. And she was one I, I hung up going, wow, yeah, <laughs> whatever, she, whatever she wants to do, I she's going to do it. She's going to do it. Um, But yeah, talking about who I'd like to have, look, I want to see this show grow to the point where, you know, I'm having 
Roger Federer on one weekend and, um, you know, Chris Hemsworth the next and, uh, you know, yeah. Hugh Jackman and Tom Brady. These are all the guys, you know, I've actually reached out to them all. I, I have reached out to Tom Brady, um, Mark Warburg, Chris Hemsworth, Hugh Jackman, and uh, trying to see if I can get them on the show. The tennis players, you know, I started playing tennis two years ago, so I'm kind of become a bit of a tennis groupie. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, but I honestly, and this is a debate we could have right now, I, I actually feel like the tennis players are arguably the greatest athletes in the world. And the reason I say that is not just from the physical side. I think physically they're incredibly gifted athletes. They know how to move. They're agile. They have the endurance because they play for three to five hours. Um, and their coordination is just unbelievable. But the fact that they have to restart a point every yeah. kind of 30 seconds to a minute. You know how when the gun goes off in a triathlon, we dive in and boom. You're, you're nervous, but then the gun goes and then you're like, oh, yeah, oh, I remember well, how yeah. to do this. And, and it goes. Tennis it's a bit like golf. You have to replay a point every single time. Yeah. But golf, I don't put in the same list because they're not quite as athletic as the tennis players. So, uh, and there I goes just, the show, Ben. Oh, there goes the show. All yeah, the yeah. <laughs> Nobody's listening now. Yeah. But, <laughs> hung up. Um, and so, yeah, I'd love to get those three on. And uh, as I mentioned, Tom Brady, I think, you know, one of the greatest ever sort of NFL football players. I just, but I also love his family, uh, his relationship with his whole family. He just seems like a, it just seems like a guy that I'd like to have a conversation with. Um, but honestly, then you think, okay, entrepreneurs and all of this, you know, you know, yourself and Jamie Hunt, uh, you know, Jamie Hunt, who started two times you and, and did incredibly well out of that clothing brand and, and yourself with the businesses you've had. I, I love the entrepreneur mindset too. I love that. And so you think, okay, we'll start at the top. Okay, Elon Musk, how do I get him on the show? You know, they, this is what I want the show to grow to. Um, I don't think I ever want to leave triathlon. I want to keep that as a real substance of what the show is, but I, I want to keep sprinkling these entertainers and yes. entrepreneurs throughout. Yeah, if I can, it'd be awesome. <laughs> Talking tennis, who's your favorite tennis player? Now you're a tennis now you're a tennis player. Who, yeah. Who's your guy? Because I love this conversation with tennis because I'm a mad tennis fan, huge tennis uh, fan. You're going to say Roger, aren't you? You're a Roger No, fan. I'm not. I actually, I, I really like Djokovic. And, ah, good. And, interesting. Yeah. I, you know, I, Rod, Rod, Roger has the ability to serve at 120K an hour, whereas the other guys are hitting 150, you know, now yeah. it's off the chart type power. But he's all finesse and I love watching that finesse and – but I don't know. There's something about Djokovic, the way he slides on a clay court and he can do the splits, I just think it's incredible. Uh, I think Nadal's probably the nicest guy. He reminds me of Javier Gomez and Mario Mola. They're just yeah, the, yeah. They're really, really genuinely nice guys yeah. um, and just a weapon. It, look, I think you could debate it all day, who's your favourite, because yeah, they, they've all got something that you love about them. You know, like Federer has gone on just – Extraordinary. Right. I love that he's able to be as old as he is and doing what he is. Yeah, uh, I agree. And he, he's just all style. He's, I, I'm not a big double-handed backhander like Nadal. I love Nadal. I, like, but yeah. I, I was a Federer fan and yeah. Nadal earned my love by just being the athlete he is. If you know. <laughs> and you've met him, didn't you? Yeah, I mean, you had your race. Yeah. yeah, totally. We had a – but he – I was always – you know, just picking aside as a as a tennis fan, I was always barracking for Federer, and I used to just sit there and go, "Jesus, Nadal's good." And he yeah. and I and just by his sheer talent, he won my. I said, "I can't dislike this guy. He's just amazing." You know, like he's yeah. a freak. 
And then and then Jocko came along and what he's done in, in such a short period of time when you've got the two greatest players of all time, you know, yeah. in, in that era he's playing and he's had to take them out to win the amount of time. I think he's, what, 17 wins now, 17 yeah. games. Yeah. It's, uh, it's ridiculous, you know, because you've got to think yeah. Roger and that one, a lot of those early slams against, I guess I'm saying they're lesser athletes, they're not by any means, but there was the Leighton Hewitts and, and these sort yeah. of athletes that he was beating, um, where where Nadal has beat uh, or, or Jocko has had to take out Roger and Nadal on his journey every time, every yeah. time, right? So yeah. It's yeah. been we've been so blessed in in tennis. So I do agree. I do um, you do you play? We're going to have to have a I, match. I, I hit the ball. I don't say I play. My wife and I play no. uh, twice a week for just just a little comp we have with the with our friends. It's oh, we're the same. That's yeah. the one thing I can do with Laura. We have even if we have forty five minutes while the two kids are napping, we can run up to the tennis court, hit the ball, and come home. Yeah, it's yeah. a really good one to just be able to go do, come back, you know. Yeah, once you start getting those rallies going, and you don't try and I, when I first started, I tried to slam the ball and win every shot, and it ruined the game. But now I've right. now we've got a nice nice rally going. <laughs> I love it. I enjoy it. Uh, we'll have to have a game when I can get back to Australia when yeah, you guys cool. open up and let us come back. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying well, to get out. I'm trying to. Get oh out. yeah, yeah. I know. I'm trying to get my mum to come out. That uh, I'd love to get her over to the states for a little bit, but then they're not too keen on letting citizens leave at the moment. Yeah, where are you trying to get? To? Are you trying to get it back to London or where, where yeah, are you off to? Yeah, back to Asia and to, to London, but it won't happen until, say, March or April. So. Yeah, yeah, it's not happening for a bit, yeah. So. No, so apart from, from those guys, I think, look, and then there's a whole bunch. I'd love to have Pat Rafter and Leighton Hewitt okay. on, you know. Obviously, all the Australians, there's so many amazing Australians. That's, my, that's home. You know, it was great having Kai Hurst on the show the other day. You know, yeah. he's just what a, just one of the great athletes of the yeah. world. Pure um, athlete, pure athlete. Yeah. Yeah, what Pure. A, yeah, great. Do you remember athlete. doing it? Were you with, do you, were you with us when we were? Remember we were sponsored by Rival in ninety seven, ninety eight. Yeah, I don't know. And Steve Philpot from Rival, he said, and we had to do this photo shoot. Were you with us in that photo shoot with Kai Hurst? This young, he was like fifteen or something, and you and I were probably twenty five, twenty six. It was like, <laughs> who's this young punk come along? And he just qualified for the Uncle Toby Super Series, or was it Neutral Grain back then? Uncle yeah, Toby, yeah. I think. Yeah, and. Uh, were you in that photo shoot? I don't remember. Probably. I, I remember heaps of them with uh, Kai. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> watching, yeah. That, watching that kid go from, a from a, like you said, a young schoolboy to just yeah. dominate. I'd never seen a swimmer like it come through that, yeah. that surf life saving. Now, now to see him in sailing, what he's doing in sailing, he's a remarkable. I know. You hear, he, he said his lung capacity is 10.2 litres. Just so you understand, because I don't know if you know that, but the average man is somewhere between six and seven liters. Now it all has to do with the size of the man, but Kai's not that big. Yeah, I have a ten point two liter lungs. It's really just not fair. Yeah, that's just <laughs> that's, that's unbelievable. Uh, anyway, um, yeah, but hopefully, I'm I'm trying to with this show to um, you know, it's been really year one has been just kind of learning the ropes, how to have conversations. For me, learning all the technical side, as I mentioned to you, yeah. there's there's been probably at least half the episodes I've had people drop out or, you know, had to <laughs> figure people turning up late, rescheduling. It's just been, you know, it's a constant, but um, it's been a real learning curve for me because I'm not a techie person. And, and it was like, okay, just learn as much as you can. I did realize pretty early on though, that I want a good audio. So I do send that off to a company called Resonant Recordings to do all the, I, the editing I, and, and help me with all of that because I'll, I, I do most of the post-production stuff, but 
uh, with the audio editing, I really want it to be done well. So I, I do send that off to be done in person, you know, done well. But ideally with the show, I want to get to the point where it's in person. Obviously with COVID in 2020, yep. that was never going to happen. But I didn't really want to do it year one anyway. I wanted to kind of learn the craft by just doing it, uh, you know, over computer to computer. But ideally, I want to take the show to where it's in person and then ideally if i can get some you know big enough sponsors if i can get enough downloads and the sponsors get bigger i really want to start it to be more like a day in the life of type series where okay you know i'll come to sydney you know you and i might go for a run and a swim have a tennis match and then sit down and we'll have a glass of wine and we'll record the conversation that that is kind of the day in the life of is where i really want to take this show and and just line up you know, and and you may not do an episode every week like that. Yes. But if you could do ten really great episodes for the year, where you do a full, and that that that's when I'd go to you know YouTube and it'd be more video and and everything else. Um, which yeah. that's my dream. That's, that's my of, dream. Rich Roll, Rich Roll does that sort of now, doesn't he? That's if you listen to the Rich yeah. Roll podcast. Yeah. He gets picked yeah. Up. Rich Rich is doing. Um, I mean, he just built a whole new studio and everything. He's yeah, yeah. exceptionally well. Um, and that was a real treat when I reached out to him and said, yeah. "Do you want to come on my show?" And he said, "Yeah." I was like, oh, "He's wow. a triathlon. He's a, he's our tra- my old training partner in LA." I, I, was, yeah. I remember when he started that podcast. I didn't even know what a podcast was. I'm like, "What? That's how yeah. long? That's how long Rich has been doing podcasts?" He's like, "Do you want to come on my podcast?" I'm like, "What's a podcast, mate? I've never heard of one." Well, that was what he told me. I said to him, you know, how did you kind of build yours to the point that you're getting several hundred thousand downloads per per episode? And he said, actually, Greg, you know, I started when podcasts went really, I think people were just, but he said, I'd done about 50 episodes. So he must've done about a year's worth. And then he said, and this, you'll like this, this is blowing smoke up your butt a bit, but he said, and then Chris McCormack came on and I got 10,000 downloads on one episode and he said i couldn't believe it but he said that was the real you were actually a part of his you know ignition to really get his show going and really? um, yeah he mentioned you i don't happen out an email now let me take some. yeah yeah i think he said because it might have been it must have been soon after you was it 2011 yeah, yeah, 2010 2011 yeah but he used to be my, me and terenzo he, he lived in la had a beautiful home up he still lives there up in the mountains and he was out yeah primary swimming partner every single day in Calabasas. Uh, very, very, very athletic guy, Rich Ryle. I know he's the vegan thing and everyone knows he was his endurance guru, endurance running guru, but he um, he was a fantastic swimmer, really, really yeah. solid swimmer. Yeah, really good. Yeah, 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 no, we talked about that a bit on the episode, but I think it was post-episode where we were chatting about when I was picking his brains on how to how to build a podcast and 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 get more people interested, and and he did mention that. So uh, there you go. You have to reach out to him. So thanks, mate. <laughs> so you're uh, the one he was oh, perfect because yeah, it's, he's, it's amazing. I love these podcasts. I find them. Uh, I've listened to a, a good uh, five or six of yours now, and I go for a drive now instead of listening to the radio. I put a podcast on. It's it's magnificent. I love them. Yeah, you know what I do? I, I turn the speed up. I don't know if you do. I find I need to listen to them at about one and a half times the speed. I'm not saying you have to do that for everybody listening, but I find about one and a half times the speed, I can take an hour and a half podcast, listen to it in an hour. Oh. And, and it, do you sound yeah. like a chipmunk or is it? No, no, not at one and a half. And even because oh. – because I have to when I when I do all the show notes and you know timestamps and all of that kind of stuff, I re-listen to all these episodes and then I I write them all down and I I often listen to it about one and a half to two times. Two times it starts to get you got to really concentrate. Right. <laughs> it's like what what do they say? What do they say? But it, it is uh, it's been fascinating for me to learn all of it. To be honest, I can't wait to get it on YouTube and in person. But for now, this is it. 
Yeah. Well, let's delve into your career, mate, because we've talked about the podcast. How did you get – I know you're a, you're a Northern Beaches boy of Sydney, so anyone who knows <laughs> Sydney, there's the north and the south, and Ben I grew up on the other side of the of the Harbour Bridge. God, so you're at the city God's of, country. Yeah, God's country. <laughs> They're in lockdown at the moment. The Insula Peninsula, they call it. Um, yeah, but how did you find a passion for endurance sport? Where did that come from? Um, you know what? I, I probably go back to – I was I went to Newington, a school on your side of the bridge, um, and Newington was big for rugby and rowing. It was one of those traditional schools where you know that's what you did. And my my older brother, people have probably heard me talk about it. You know, he was the 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 rugby player. He ended up playing professional rugby, and and he was down the boat shed. He wasn't the biggest guy, but but he was rowing. And so I thought, okay, I'll I'll go down and row. And I went down. Oh, here we go. I'm going to be a rower. And they put me in the coxswain seat. For people who don't know, that's the little guy that sits down the back of the boat because he's too small that steers and, and basically manages the boat. And uh, I was kind of, I really didn't enjoy that. I was like, oh, this sucks. But what I realized is when the crew would go training, we'd go on these long runs. And I'd often be crew for, I'd be a coxswain for a lot of these guys that were three, four years older than I was and I realized I could outrun them all you know I was probably 12 13 and I was like oh I started kind of enjoying running but it was really not until the Nepean triathlon in 1990 1986 sorry 86 I was 14 and had a couple of mates that said hey why don't you come out and do the a relay with us at this thing called a triathlon you're a runner and uh, and we'll do it as a relay I said all right and it was a, I think it was an 800 meter swim a 30k bike and it was a 14 kilometer run that was the way it was back then you know it was like everything was all over the place and and so we got to the race and then the guy that was meant to do in the swim had an asthma attack and said greg you you know you're gonna have to do the swim now i'd never swum in my life i, I mean i'd been in the surf and stuff but i couldn't swim anyway i did the swim came out second last out of i don't know however many hundred people were in the race and tag tag my mate who went and did the bike he came back I think we were still either in last or second last. And and then I took off on the run and got through the run. It was a long, long way. I think I took off like it was an 800-meter run and realized 14K is a long way. And, um, and, and did that. And what it was was the atmosphere at the finish and the people. And it was like, I love this. Yeah. You know, and it was just like, and I was like, I could do the bike. I've done the swim and the run. How hard could the bike be? And so it was really, I think, Wollongong Triathlon in 87, in January. I think I went and got a bike for Christmas and then it was, did this triathlon and, and did it miserably. I think I just broke three hours for the Olympic distance or whatever it was. And, but again, loved it. It wasn't about being the best or anything. It was just simply the people and the testing myself and the pushing and, um, and then it was kind of maybe a couple of years after that, there was Balmoral Triathlon Club started up and they would do Friday night aquathons and, ah. biath- you know, swim runs, swim races and biathlons. And and then the local Sydney ones, you know, I'd go down to Cronulla and you guys had the the Richie Walker Memorial um, Triathlon out there on, at Cornell. Um, and there was just all these little events popping up everywhere. There's you know, and, aquathons, huh? There was the Coke series over at Coogee. Did you do that? The Yeah, yeah, the Coogee one. There was one across Sydney Harbour, yeah. um, the Triple M Biathlon. Remember that one? Yeah. Lots yeah. Of and fun events, yeah, lots of them. Yeah, yeah. so it was all of those. And I, I, I kind of was, yeah, for me it was just being around the people and finding something for myself. Because I don't know about you, but I – I found high school pretty tough at times. You know, you're kind of this insecure 
kid just trying to find your way a little bit. I was never the most confident. And being at a school where it was all about who's the biggest and strongest with rugby and rowing, kind of trying to find your way if you're not into band or whatever else, but you you love sports. It's kind of like, well, what do I do? And I was fortunate that triathlon was really starting to boom. And in that late 80s, it was everything was happening. It was, you know. Right then, who were the – like who were the stars winning the triathlons then? Was was Welshy around, or had he already really gone to the states? Who was? Oh no, it was still it was still Welshy, but it was remember Stephen Foster. Um, there was um, oh, what's the other Melbourne guy? Greg um, Tim Bentley. Tim Bentley. Yeah. Tim Bentley. And there was another Greg guy. I, I've forgotten his name. Stuart. Greg Stewart. Stewart. That's it. Greg Stewart. Because I know there was a whole group of Gregs coming through at the same time. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and so yeah, I remember that. That era, it was like everything was neon, fluorescent, you know, and everything was bright and disc wheels were coming in and these funny little aero bars called Scott DH bars or Profile even had their own sort of pram pushing looking aero bars and clipless pedals. And it felt like every six months something new and exciting was coming out and and we'd sneak in. I know you and I have shared stories about this. You know, we'd sneak into the local pubs and sit down the back to watch Sky yeah. Sports to be able to watch the American races, you know, the what was it? Chicago, I think, was even on then, and um, Hilton Head and the whole Bud Light series. Miles Stewart going over there racing the Americans, living through the magazines here. <laughs> that was it. So you started about the same time, right? I started ninety, so you're a few years in front of me. I I I, I sort of discovered it the same. I remember vividly the first time I I knew who you were, but I remember being down at is either Maruya or Bateman's Bay, one of those triathlons, and you won the, you won the event and. Uh, and I remember standing at the back and all the Southwall boys were there and and you got up. I think I said it on our podcast and you said, I want to thank all my sponsors and you took a step back, <laughs> took a step back for the microphone because you didn't have any. <laughs> but everyone, was, everyone back then who won races always had sponsors, Barracuda or you're like, I'd like to thank all my sponsors and you just took a step back and didn't have any. I'm like, I like this guy. <laughs> it's just a new wave because everyone had a sponsor except the, the next generation, the young guys, but – I remember thinking, oh, that's okay. He's Greg Bennett, huh? Okay, I remember that. Well, you remember all the young guys coming through. You remember like Lock Vomerhouse, Jason okay. Harper was down in your era, Ben Bright. Um, Those Ben Bright were- and Lock Vomerhouses, they were young guys that were making it. They, they weren't just making it. They were like oh, taking on Mark Allen at yeah. the Gold Coast World Cup. Remember that race? Totally, totally. So there was this sort of desperation, I think, from my end, and I know knowing you quite well, we thought we'd miss the boat. We thought we were up. Big time. Big time. <laughs> we thought we were up. Uh, ben Bright was winning races and he was younger than us. I'm like, oh, man. Miles Stewart was a world champion at 20. Yeah, he won the Miles Stewart. Was it 91 world champs 91. on the Gold Coast? Yeah. And he won it. And he was basically six months older than I was. I was like, what? Unbelievable. Yeah. Just how good these guys were. And and then for me, it was really like a couple of years later, I was getting through university. I think you were at the same time. And and then Australia started, uh, we had the Nike series that was kind of going around. And that was kind of, there was a few races around, uh, you know, Victoria and New South Wales. And, and then uh, there was just a big announcement that we're going to have this event. It's going to be much like the Uncle Toby's um, Surf Ironman series. Yeah. It's going to be, and then they had this big sponsor, the Bray Brothers from yeah. Online Sports and Tui's Blue, which is a big, for people who don't know, is a big beer company in Australia, Tui's. Um, we're going to sponsor alcohol it. Alcohol-free, alcohol, low alcohol. Low alcohol, yeah, low alcohol. But And then they had, they said, we're going to pick, it's going to be 25 guys and they're going to pick 15 and they're going to have qualifying 
spots for 10 others. Yeah. And I just remember going, I I have to get, try and get on this series. And three qualifying races, I ended up racing okay in all three. Um, I think I finished second in that little qualifying series and I made it to this Tui's Blue series at the start of 94. And I will never forget getting on the plane that was taking us all up to um, the Gold Coast. Sanctuary Cove and on the plane was Greg Welsh, you know, and Chippy Slater and all these guys that were just, they were the best. They weren't just the best in Australia. They were the best in the world, Ever. you know. Yeah. I'm like, I felt like, okay, I am not meant to be here. And you said it in your podcast. Um, how did you put it again? Um, imposter. imposter syndrome. Ah, imposter syndrome is what I had big time. And and then I was rooming with with Chippy Slater and uh, you know and fiery Chippy. He had me all nervous before the races and and I remember these messages. They were live television, yeah. And we would get fined if you were late for the briefing. It'd be two hundred bucks if you wrong, wore the wrong t shirt. Two hundred bucks if you whatever you did. Everything was like two hundred dollar fines everywhere because you couldn't afford to be late. Everything was like clockwork for live television. Yeah. And uh, mate, it was. That was One huge. of the most unbelievable, scary, exciting moments of my life, standing on the pontoon at Sanctuary Cove for the first race of that Tui's Blue Series, helicopter overhead, live television, counting down, you know, the Bray brothers, nervous as hell. Everybody was nervous, you know. Everybody was petrified of what was going on. None of us really knew what we were doing. And, and away it went. We had three sprint races back to back. The Tui's Blue Bike Bowl, which yeah. they made this ramp that you had to go around 45 degrees and it had this lip on it that was yeah, it was like jumping over a footpath or a curb. You had to lift your front wheel up, hook yourself around, come back down. Oh, it was scary up. as hell. You, you were in it for the, for the fans that got to watch that. You know, it was the first time triathlon in Australia was live television. Yeah. I mean, prime time live on a Sunday afternoon. I remember zooming home like we were – you you actually you had one of the uniforms, which you were one of the twenty five guns of the. But for the, for the fans that were watching it, I, I I remember that day turning on the television channel, you know, watching that race with all the guys having a big barbecue at the house, going, "Oh my god, this is amazing!" You yeah. know, there's Benno, there's you know, there's Brad Bevan. You know, you were prime time TV. It's, that 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 single event and that series as we've talked about a lot, changed the face of triathlon in this country. It was it was remarkable. That I was, think it changed triathlon for the world. Yeah, I, I do. Think we, I, I think we look at your Super League now, which is a lot of, you know, what, what we I, did in the I, 90s. Yeah, totally. And, and this made for, you know, for, for an audience. It's It changed triathlon for the better. I just, it for us, it was a real launching pad to being professionals right away. Yeah. My career didn't start going, oh, I'll be an age grouper for a bit or I'll be somewhat of a professional. It was like, bang, you're you're on the world stage. You are live television. You are now got Hungry Jack swap cards, which for Americans, yeah. Hungry Jacks is Burger King. You know, we're, we're, we're doing all the background TV video commercials for it. We're going school visits. We're doing, you know, I was a 21, 22-year-old, suddenly just launched into the spotlight. And it was, and, and thankfully we had guys like Brad Bev and, and Greg Welsh and that took the brunt of it. They were far bigger names than all of us. But the rest of us got dragged along. And, man, you look at the amount of us that came out of that program because that was the first race, if you think, Sanctuary Cove. But then we had – I think that first year might have even had seven events. Yeah. might have been five, but I can't remember clearly. And then we had the next year. And you qualified the next year, right? I, I, yeah. And I think yourself and Miles Stewart then came in that year. 
and boy, suddenly the field got more and more competitive. Every every single piece of ta- every triathlon talent or anyone who had thought they were a talent after seeing the two E's blue were like, that is my new focus. That's what I want to do. That's all I want to do is get into that into that yeah. series. And it, it changed the way young young triathletes saw themselves. They saw an opportunity, which was on our own shores, I guess. Mm. You know, and I I mate, I think as you as you sort of touched on what that series also did which you don't really realise, was, was you got an initiation in, in how to talk to a camera, how to how to do an interview, how, because the Bray boys just grabbed you. You came fifth in a race. Right, we've got Chris McCormack live on telly. You're like four, three, <laughs> two. You're like, ah. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> you, you just, it was an initiation of fire, right? Like you would never have learnt all those skills that became very, very important later in your career that had yeah. you not been thrust into the spotlight like that was, was remarkable. And it made us better athletes. If you think back, we were racing full summer seasons because we had the the Grand Prix or yeah. you know Formula One, whatever you want to call it. it. Changed names a few times, but we then had a few national series events. We would then leave Australia and, and go straight off to do you know the World Cup series or join or race for French clubs or whatever we did. And you look back, well, a normal year was twenty five races. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't that wasn't that was ridiculous. Yeah, yeah, that was normal. Yeah, yeah. that was normal, and, and it was a way to pay the rent. I mean, we we were very fortunate with the that series in Australia. I think I remember in uh, yeah that Tui's Blue series. I think I think I finished sixth or seventh in the series, and somebody probably can correct me if I'm wrong. But Tui's Blue, I finished sixth or seventh, and I remember looking at the bank account and going, "Wow, I think I made eighteen thousand dollars or something." You know, and and I was still at university at the time. I was like, "Wow, you know this." Yeah. You, you do get that little, maybe this can be my career. Totally. You know, maybe this can be something I, I, I do in the future. And that same year, 94, I qualified for my first world championships in, in Wellington, New Zealand, which was the last uh, non-drafting world championships. And and because I'd raced in the Australian, you know, to his Blue Series, going to Wellington, again, I was used to pressure. I was used to helicopters overhead. I was used to cameras. I was used to all of that, that none of that felt overwhelming. And, and I think we had almost 100 guys on the start list in Wellington. It was deep water, freezing cold start. And uh, I remember having a, a, a pretty good race there and finishing 14th and um, making 1000 bucks. I was like, okay, maybe this is what I should be doing. <laughs> I mean, you look back and go, it doesn't sound like a lot, but as you know, a university kid that was working at Sizzler, as you did, yep. uh, it was yeah. these little $1,000 checks that came rolling in every now and then made you kind of gave you that little pat on the back and go, okay. you, let, you let off the bike there. Do you, you let off the bike. No, Spencer, Spencer got me. Spencer, yeah, yeah, exactly. Spencer, Spencer outswam me by almost a minute and a half. And then I think we had very similar bike splits. Yeah. So I got off the bike second, but he was well up the road. And and then I remember Brad Bevan champion. running past me. He yeah. was the defending world champion. So it was Spencer. Yeah, but he was my age. He's our age. I oh, know. He was, he was another yeah. Miles Stewart. These young guys came on and just went bang. Yeah. That was so good. <laughs> totally. Was that when you realized post that event, okay, you had two East Blue and you were top – you know, you were right there in the two E's, but there was it was really a Brad and Greg show that first couple of years. But was it yeah. that that event in New Zealand, that World Championships, when you realised you had some, you know, you were beyond just good at this. You were actually very talented at triathlon. When when did that come? When did you realise you had that sort of strength to be a talent, a big talent? I think it was. I think it was gradual. There was a number of pats on the back. I think it, it, it you know started with sort of the Balmoral Triathlon Club aquathons, like we talked about, and winning those, and 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 again, that's 
in fairness, that's beating up on people that are working full time yeah, and everything. Else. But but you get these little, just these little pats on the back that say this is this is pretty good. And but it was, I think, yes, I think qualifying for uh, that Twist Blue Series, I think w- winning the Richie Walker Memorial Triathlon in front of Mick Maroney, who was kind of Mick Maroney down in Cronulla Shire, was the big gun, and I remember outrunning him there. And these little pats on the back, but then qualifying for my first Australian team to go to Wellington, New Zealand World Champs. I'll yeah. never forget, you know, my dad's face when I came in and said, Dad, I, I'm representing Australia at the World Champs. And he started crying and, you know, it was just like that was – That was huge. No one in our family, you know, was representing Australia. No, it was like, what are we talking about? It was a really big moment. And um, and then so, so that World Championships was really special for that and uh, – I didn't get a great preparation. I had university exams right up until the Thursday before and I was just kind of like, you know, but but again, getting 14th, being in the top 10 for much of the race and, you know, um, I, I think that was a nice pat. And then it really was, I finished university in 94 and so I was like, okay, 95, let's just go all in. We'll do the series again. We'll, we'll be full time. And I did the series again. I don't think I did as well. Oh, maybe I finished fourth that year in that series. It was maybe okay. Then I got injured. Uh, had an ITB injury, which I look back now and it's so treatable, some of these injuries that yeah. I look back. But that was scary then because suddenly I'm making no money again. And uh, you're like, oh, maybe I should be, you know, I should go back and do some more study or I should, you know, go get a, a real job or whatever. And But fortunately, I got over the injury. I actually came down with kind of a borderline pleurisy or whatever, really a bronchial issue that knocked me on my back for four weeks. That got rid of the ITB because I couldn't walk. And uh, and then I kind of got going. And then it was really that 96 where things really started to to click. I I joined a new coach, uh, Brett Sutton, took me under his wing. Um, and that was the world champs in Cleveland Yes, where I qualified. I didn't think they'd put me on the team. They put me on the team. I was like, oh, incredibly grateful for them putting me on the team, and I finished fourth. I got overtaken by Manzan, a uh, Brazilian, right on the, the final 200 meters. Uh, just lost the podium there, but uh, that was a, a great race because myself, Simon Leffing, Lessing, um, Brad Bevan, and Hamish Carter no, not Brad. Walter. 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 Craig Walton. Sorry, not Brad Bevan. Uh, uh, Craig Walton. Yeah, the four of us got out of the swim. Yeah. I just had one of those starts where I got on Waldo's hip and dragged on his feet and just had a great swim. And then the four of us got away on the bike and we just charged and opened a 55 second gap. And, yeah, and that race in Cleveland was, again, cemented it. Do you know what I mean? It was like a, a gradual over, for me, about five or six years. I didn't have a, breakthrough race like i think you had a breakthrough race in you had um drummondville right yeah yeah that was you had drummondville or you won that it was just like bang was that like how it was for you for me that was it but i i yeah as i said when you interviewed me i was on my end it was i had these breakthrough races but you 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 need some consistency as you were saying you'd build it over some time the breakthrough races you always had an excuse why you won in your own head you try and be something Uh, people like oh okay it was a breakthrough race that you realized you could be something, but you wanted in your own head, your own self-doubts, whether it was a fluke. So you had to sort of constantly prove to yourself that you could do it again where, you know, I think I remember for you, I, from my side, I always thought, okay, I can probably keep up with Greg Bennett. He was sort of my benchmark. You were my guy that was sort of going along together. But I that Cleveland year when you were gone, I I was like, oh, man, he's gone to the next level. That was sort of my, my – <laughs> because I was in that group when you four rode away – 
And we had everyone, mate. We had, you know, Miles Stewart in that group. We had um, Greg Walsh in the group with us. We had everybody. There was the four of you that disappeared in the distance. And we were swapping big turns. And you had gone. I thought, oh, well, then I won't run very good. And then you ran off and finished fourth. And I was like, oh, mate, you, you're next level because you swam, biked, and ran with the best athletes in the world. And so for yeah. me, it's like, yeah, Greg Bennett's the next level. I've got to play catch up. You know, you always. Well, you certainly caught up because then if we shift quickly to 97, it was, uh, that, I think 97 for both you and I. Yeah, we both went next level. I think I think that was our year. Yeah, I yeah. think because I remember sitting with Trent Chapman down in um, the AIS in, Ca- in Canberra and we were doing a little training camp there in, in January or February of, of 97. And I remember sitting, we were looking at the big screen TV there in the AIS and, and Chapo says to me, if, it, if either of us ever win a World Cup, we have to buy a big screen TV. And I was like, that's what a great idea, I thought. You know, and back then, this is when big screen TVs were $10,000 or whatever. And, and I was like, that's a great idea. Thinking it would never happen. Do you know what I mean? I was like, it, that seemed like saying, you know, if you go to the moon in 2021, you get to have a big screen TV. It really didn't, wasn't on the foreseeable future. We truly, neither of us truly believed it to be possible. We knew there or thereabouts, but didn't believe it. And then it was Monaco in 97 where I had that um, yeah. the, the, the breakthrough. again. Yeah, I got off on the – and uh, you were chasing me, Dimitri Gag. There was a whole plethora of guys, and I'd gone off on my own on the bike and just managed to hold you guys off on the run, just. Um, Did you buy the big 10- screen TV? <laughs> I know. It's, I do have a big screen TV in our place in Boulder, um, but it did take me probably another 10 years until I did get it, Chapo. I'm sorry, mate, but I did get it. <laughs> but uh, but that 97 then year then, I think, you know, we both, you know, we had great consistency. I ended up getting hit by a car. Um, no, I didn't get hit. That was a different crash. Sorry. I had a crash in um, Germany. Do you remember Flughafen Hart, yeah, the yeah. training camp we had yeah. there? Yeah. <laughs> what a, so for those that don't know, Australian Team Australia had a massive camp in a in a Flughafen Hahn in Germany, just outside of uh, Frankfurt. Uh, well, how many of us were there? About 30, yeah. 30 Australians in this camp. Yeah. It was the old it was the old um, cycling Australia training base. So a lot, ah. of, a lot of cycling guys used to be there too. Nick Gates and they used to say. Han, it's Han Military Airport, wasn't it? Is that Flughafen? Han? Well, Flughafen means airport, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think German. Uh, uh, yeah. So in, in Han, and it was a great training location. It was a lot of fun. I remember young Courtney Atkinson and, and Trent Chapman, and then you had a, oh gosh, everyone, the whole bunch, everybody, all the carnies. Yeah, the, that's right. It was incredible, and we used to swim in that silver. Um, pond pool thing that was like a yeah, the, the tin pool, tin pool. <laughs> it was great but yeah that yeah. Was, yeah that was that was when we sort of all that whole group started you know the young I think that was in your career without question and and mine we, we, we as we said earlier we very much mimicked our progression through the ranks that was our year 97s the 98s the 99s you were on yeah. we're on point it was sort of the changing of the guard we no longer despite respecting the Greg Welshers and the Brad Bevans, I think at that point we believed we were, it was our time to shine. And, yeah. uh, you know, it was, a, it was a good a good point in our careers, I think. Would you say that was the point where you started to take control of your career or did that take a little bit more time? I think it took more time for me. I, I think when I look back, I think I was, because of my lack of confidence in myself, I often gave my career or, or my journey over to others, my process over to others, probably more than I should have. Um, 
I think, you know, I had some great coaches along the way, but it really took missing the Sydney Olympics in 2000 that you and I both spoke, you know, we've spoken long and long about um, because it really was that 97, 8, 9. Um, we'd done pretty well in the World Series and had thought, you know, that that Olympics was ours, but whatever. Like I said earlier, Hamish Carter said <laughs> it goes deserved to whoever gets it at the end. But so for us, I think we were both very – disappointed bewildered in the sport and i know both of us sort of contemplated well what do we do next you know and um for me it was almost what i needed to go well you need to take control you need you know the federation have taken away the olympic spot um you probably could have done better in performing in the qualifying 100 percent, i could have done better in qualifying um and and for that i've got to take more responsibility and so during that next sort of Olympic cycle was, okay, what do I need to do to become, you know, to make sure that the selectors aren't even going to have a say. I just need to make it happen. Yeah. And that's where I moved to Canada after Simon Whitfield said, you know, Greg, would you come to Canada and help me prepare for the Olympics? Um, and I was pretty disappointed with Australia. As I mentioned, I said, well, of course, you know, you're a good mate and I need a change. So I went to Victoria, Canada. I started working with his coach, Lance Watson, and uh, – Lance was as much a consultant as a coach. So it's, I, I started to take more control. I wasn't handing over the full coaching to him. Um, so that, and then, so I, that was the shift from Sato. So pr- prior to that, it was yeah. under the Brett Sutton care, which was a lot a lot more Brett dictating terms, would you say? Or you just, just – 100%. Put, okay. 100%. I mean, I mean Brett, Brett's whole thing was, you know, turn up, don't think, and do what it takes. Do what I say, and and I, I wanted that for my, that period of my life. And I learned how to train hard. I learned a lot about myself. But I think in order to go to the next level, I had to take more control and more responsibility of what I was doing. And and that's where the shift to Canada falling. And I fell back in love with the sport. Moving to Canada, it was interesting. I I'd lost my passion a little bit. It had become work. And then with the disappointment of not making the Olympics and all the pressure that went with it, it had become kind of. And you kind of said it as, you know, you, you, you hate or anger fueled you. And I was a little bit like that. And I, uh, I didn't operate well that way. And I think when I went to Canada, you know, they were laughing during swim sets and having fun. I was like, huh, this reminds me of, you know, 10 years ago, Balmoral Triathlon Club, where we're all working out, having a laugh and a, and a good time. And I needed that. I needed that escape. And, and you know, and that, that transitioned me to finally by sort of 2002 and 2003, winning the World Series those couple of years and starting to get on the podium nearly every single race or, or winning more World Cups. And, and I think because I was falling in love with the sport again and even more so, I was falling in love with a girl. And that was, you know, meeting Laura in 2000. And I think that I don't know anybody that's been in love, that energy that you get when, you, when you're falling in love with somebody and that connection that you have, for me, helped me become a better man and a better athlete. And, and that transition to 04 Olympics, making the team um, and then coming fourth, you know, I got injured and, and it wasn't ideal prep. Again, I take full responsibility. I learned a lot during that phase. Um, but even then, I still felt like I still had to take more control and, and more responsibility and st- figure out, what can I do that I'm not doing to become the, the very best in the world? I want to be the best in the world. I didn't feel like I ever was. I felt like I had I got to touch little bits. Every now and then you get to borrow it for half a second and then nah, you're crap again. And I was like, how can I be get myself to be the very, very best? And 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 it really was that next phase of that sort of 0506 where Laura and I together sat down and said, right. What can we do in every single aspect of our life 
to be better at what we're doing. A quick mini break. I really want to encourage you to do something special for yourself and sign up to Athletic Greens and get a free year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase by visiting athleticgreens.com forward slash Greg. Again, that's athleticgreens.com forward slash Greg. Hypervolt now have a great holiday sale. $50 off Hypervolt and Hypervolt Plus, $400 off all normal tech packages, 20% off all other Hypervolt tech, and the brand new Hypervolt Go is now available for $199. It's smaller and it's more portable. Hypervolt.com. That's hypervolt.com. H Y P E R I C E.com. You've come off that fourth in Athens on an amazing that was an amazing course, a tough it was it was a real hard hard person. You would have you would have loved it, mate. It was your Olympics too. It was the strong men of the sport loved it, you know. Absolutely. What what was so you came forth was the takeaway were you happy with that or was there a little bit of disappointment? What what is what are you saying? Yeah, you, you, you it was realized you I think could potentially win it, and that was the is that why you made the changes in 05 you were talking about before? I, I think I struggled, like I said. All the way until about 06 with confidence. Even and after that fourth place. Even after Beijing, well, leading, Athens. Leading, leading into Athens, definitely, I didn't believe I could win. I There wasn't that. When I, I learned to win in 07, 2007, so almost you know 20 years into racing the sport of triathlon, I was a slow learner. Far, right? I, whereas someone like yourself, Miles Stewart, I, I'd watch you guys and you always tended to just if you knew you wanted it, you would make it happen. And, and I I thought that was just something that you guys just had. I didn't believe it was a learnt skill. And so for me, I had to learn how to win. And and I remember going into Athens, you know, I, I just made the team. I just scraped in. Um, I, I then had got injured with an Achilles injury, couldn't run. About eight weeks before the Olympics started to be able to train normally and trained relentlessly. And I got actually got to Athens. And my mindset was don't embarrass yourself. Wow. That was that was how poor my mental strategy was going into Athens. It was simply don't embarrass yourself. And then I got on the swim and biked and, and you know, I, I end up having a reasonable day. But had I had a better mindset, had I gone in not being arrogant but just believing in the work and who I was and my ability, I think um, I definitely could have been mixing up with Hamish and Bevan for the win. But, again, you got to be the complete package and I didn't have that and I had to – learn that and what was missing um and and for me i kind of law and i now look at it as we go look there's seven fundamentals that you need to put in place if you want to get the very 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 best out of yourself and that's been largely what i ask a lot of my guests on each of the episodes of the podcast is you know we go through each of the seven fundamentals and you know and and we can touch on that now if you like basically it's you know, for me, the number one fundamental is is your team and your relationships. And, and we talked about it with your episode. You know, you, you surround yourself with people that want the best for you, you know, and they're, they're great at what they do, but they truly want the best for you. And you've always had that. You know, I see you, your friends like with Mick Gilliam and, um, you know, you, you, I just always have seen you have your little entourage yeah. where people are there and they're there for you. Yeah. And that's empowering, isn't it? It's like totally. you need to be – oh, here's a little side story. So I've talked about team and relationships and the importance of this on this show a bit. My mum, who listens to a lot of the episodes, she went out. So she, my dad passed away uh, 20 
well, last year, 2019. And so she's on her own. And, and so she's gone and built her team. And she has her finance. She has a veterinarian. She has a um, oh, lawyer, her best friends. And she's built this team. And so she said she now has them all come over kind of biannually twice a year. She'll put a big meal on for them all and calls them her team yep. and surrounds herself with these people that all want the best for her. I'm like, wow, that, that's all. And that is just so yeah. she can go these, you know, retirement years better than if she was on her own. And uh, I think that's really empowering when you hear that message of building a team and relationships um, and taking control of your life. That's almost like step one. Find good people, surround yourself with it, and get rid of the deadwood, you know? Yeah. Um, and I had, when I look back at my, my career, obviously, my family, my mom and dad, it, from day one, they said, just chase any opportunity. They never made me feel guilty for chasing triathlon. You know, what are you doing? In, no, I never had that. I was always go to town. And I always had that, even though we were on the road probably 10, 11 months of the year, I could always leave stuff at their house and come back and stay when I wanted to. I always had that. Yes. That to me was a huge advantage to have a home life where, where I could go home if I had to. Yeah. You know, that was a massive advantage. And, yeah. and then after that, you know, you know, my brothers obviously, but then meeting Laura, as I mentioned, that was probably one of the biggest things. And, and then you start building your specific team, you know, your, your chiropractors, you know, had Dr. Alex Keith down here in Florida would travel with me to all my key races and, um, you know, work at me at 2 a.m. in the morning before Dallas, you know, the fifth race from five in 2007. Just uh, just incredible people. Marcus Mejias, uh, Ted Forkham, Duncan Crosby. These guys are all bodywork people, Christine Bell. And I had all of these people around me all the time. And it is amazing, though, the better you get, the bigger your team and the more people want to be a part of it. And, you know, because I'm, I'm laughing now because I'm building this podcast. I'm like, oh, I need a team. I need a team. But nobody wants to be in your team when you're, you're kind of starting out. And I'm kind of like, ah. Oh. Uh, I mean, for you, it was much the same. I mean, you you had a small team, but they were with you throughout your whole career, right? Yeah, with, since the beginning. Helen McGuckin, uh, she's my running coach since day dot. She came to everything. Um, you know, and I remember Michael, Helen. Yeah, lovely, Michael, lovely woman. Michael Gilliam, Susan Kalafner, um, people that are with me. My and, and as you said, I think the most important thing they have a unselfish, unwavering belief in you when you don't at times, right? They, oh, absolutely, they're the glue, and they're the people mm-hmm. that pull you out of the. You can do this. You know, you just need that. As you said, you got pats on the back from the club members. That that that, that team pats you on the back and lifts you up when you feel down and, and just makes you feel whole and, and gives you – I found it gave me the confidence to be – to to the confidence and the backing to to be who I wanted to be, you know, and, and whether I could achieve that or not, you know, a lot of the time they said, yeah, of course you can, and they were there to help facilitate that. And a lot of people from the outside, I think I said on the podcast with you, used to say about when you're building a team, and they used to say about me, oh, Macca only puts people around him that tells him what he needs, tells him how good he is, you know, and it's, it's 100%. Yeah. <laughs> that's exactly what you do. That, that's your yeah. thing. That, you know, some people, right. from an outsider's perspective, it can look at times quite like a cult or semi-narcissistic, but that's the great thing of a team. They believe wholeheartedly in in the individual, in the process, and in, in the direction you're going, in the goal, and they're, and they're all in. And that, yeah. that's really, yeah. really important. Yeah. yeah, and I think that I think it was massive for me. Come that kind of oh six oh seven, um, it was like the, I, I've talked about, and one of the talks I do do is is basically learning how to win, as I mentioned earlier. And 
you know, I, I kind of think before 06, 07, I, I had a winning rate of around that 8 to 10%, right? So it's not terrible. One, one out of every 10 races kind of thing, I get to have a little win, but it wasn't a lot, you know? And I think I was looking at yourself and, and Miles and, and Brad and, and Greg Walsh, and you guys were far, far more consistent than that. And, and I knew something had to change. And for, for me, that was, you know, I was fortunate with the American series, the Lifetime Fitness um, Triathlon Series that Brahma Karate put on and he put on big money, non-drafting Olympic distance. Yeah. Now, that's, that was my bread and butter. That's how I started the sport. That was, for me, I needed the bike time trial to toughen up the legs for the run. And, and, and it was suddenly just fell into my lap and, and, and I have tremendous gratitude for my whole career because the amount of times like Laura just says, it's, it's just uncanny how the opportunities just kept coming my way. If I think about myself as a, a 20 year old and suddenly Tui's blue Grand Prix yeah. starts up, boom, <laughs> you know, then a few years later, triathlon gets into the Olympics boom, I'll focus on World Cups and the Olympic movement. Then, okay, I'm done with the Olympics. Boom, Brahma Karate puts on a lifetime fitness triathlon, non-drafting Olympic suit. Oh, great, thank you very much. Boom, that finishes. We'll start with the high V triathlon. You know, so my my career was, we, you know, um, what's that guy's book where he talks about work, um, talent, and opportunity? Um, oh. somebody, somebody will tell me. But it's a fantastic book. It might come to me in a moment. But basically... I look at my career. Yes, I worked incredibly hard. I have some ability, but boy, I had some opportunities yeah. drop my way, you know. And and that that was the lasting thing on my career. And I know I've got a little sidetracked off. Yeah, but you have to pursue those thing. opportunities, Greg. Which you did. It's one thing to have yeah. opportunities, um, but you have to pursue them because uh, you know that's that's the most difficult thing. A lot, a lot of times, yeah. opportunities only you only realize they're an opportunity because you opt to head in that direction. Yeah, no, for sure. Well, I think the, the second part of it is so we got team and relationships is sort of number one. But the second big thing for me was uh, really understanding the mind and getting control of, you know, my own insecurities and, and, and my confidence. Yeah. Because I still, because I, I knew that that was a weakness and that, you know, I'm all about playing to strengths, but sometimes you really got to work on your weaknesses. And What in particular did you see as a weakness in your arsenal? Interesting because I, from an outsider's perspective, I didn't think you had one. You, you know, that's the irony of, from as a yeah. But I didn't have. I don't know that I believed I had a weapon to break up the race. And that weapon being, I had the weapon, the but right. I didn't believe I had it. And that, right. that weapon was basically toughen up a race. And we're, we're much the same as athletes. You and I, we we both hope that our swim will be there. Yeah. <laughs> you know, first pack. Yeah. Then we we know we can toughen up the bike. Either we get away on our own, or we can just at least harden it up. And then we know we can run on fatigued legs and, yep. you know, potentially run a, you know, a 30-minute type 10K, 30, 31-minute 10K for the win. That's a pure gold race for both you and I. I think the learning to win, the visualizing comes a year out from a certain race. It comes and that visualizing then affects the physical and that – what you think directly affects your physiology, I 100% believe in. I've done a lot of research on it, especially this year. And so I spent a lot of time visualizing both on massage tables, you know, just thinking about it, but then also out specifically physically when I was out running. You know, I, I, was ver I became very, very good at putting a commentator in my head. Yeah. You know, if I'm doing 10 by 1K efforts or three-minute efforts, it's like I would – in warm-up, I'd break it up, you know, have all the players in my head. There's Chris McCormack, Simon Whiffle, Hamish Carter, whoever it is, right? And always Peter Robinson because he was always <laughs> doing sprints and surges and having a bit of fun. But 
but I I would got so good at it repetitive that it actually affected the physical training I was getting. So I got used to be putting in big surges at say on the third effort and then on the sixth effort. And then, you know, I got used to changing pace at, at, at high speed. And that was because I was Doing. always racing somebody in my head. Yeah. And then on the bike that happened as well. And, and it got to the point, I got very excited getting to races about just trying to put the race together that I'd already visualized. And it was incredible when it happened. When you actually visualized a race and it actually happened. happens exactly, I mean, that for me was the breakthrough I needed. And that really happened in that 2006 kind of window where I just started going. And that, because that then confidence came with it. Gotcha. You know, confidence came with it where I started going, okay, I, I think I, I know how to do this now. Um, that didn't mean I still didn't have self doubt creeping in, you know, all the time. I think that, that self doubt and anxiety. Is always there, and that it's almost a fuel to go out the door and train harder. Um, yeah, yeah. But 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 it def- definitely helped, and you know. And then I started, you know, things like just re- reducing, you know, the negativity around me, reducing the noise, get only surrounding myself with positive people. Um, you know, affirmations. I used a lot of word affirmations. But again, some people, you know, I've had on the show, and I asked Javier Gomez, "Do you visualize or use word affirmations?" He's like, "No, I don't do any of that." And then he, and then 15 minutes later in the conversation, he goes, yeah, when I visualize that, la, 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 la. And he'll like, say, oh, so I'm like, you kind of, you do visualize. <laughs> but, it, but it comes more natural to some people. Whereas for, we, for me, I had to actually, it was planned. I, I had to force it. And then I became better and better at it. Um, and, and that was huge for me. Does um, success feed that even more? So the more success, yes. okay, good. Yes. Yeah. yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? It's yeah. like you get that little pat and then you kind of, um, yeah, I think by sort of, oh, in mid thirties, I think you, you, you coined it, you know, the golden thirties. Yeah. And, and for me, that kind of 32 to 39 were really my golden years because it was like, now I started to win, you know, one in two, one in three races. It has started to become, I, I'm comfortable leading, yeah. you know, it's still stressful leading. You, you're getting chased down and everything else, but because I've always been the chaser, I know the mindset of a chaser too. So then when you're leading, you can kind of be comfortable going, yeah, he's doubting himself where the, whether he can catch me. Yeah. You know, <laughs> all I got to do is get around this corner and sprint one more time and then he'll give up. Yeah. You know, yeah, I you kind of know the attitude of somebody chasing. So, so that, yeah, it definitely did help fuel it. Um, and, and I think, I think also understanding that physically I was getting very, very strong. Like I, I knew I could swim front pack. I knew I could ride that 52 to 53 minute bike. And I knew I could run, you know, a, a low 30, 10 K off the bike. And, and it was funny in 07, when Brahm put up the, you know, if you win the five from five and on the Hunter Kemper episode, I kind of stepped everybody through the, the five from five races, but none of us believed a guy could do it. We all potentially thought Emma Snows would do it. Yeah. Um, until she got beaten on the first race by Fernandez. Yeah. <laughs> and we're, we're like, oh, oh, oh. And, and for me, I was so heavily focused on the first race in Minneapolis because it was actually the last race of the 06 series as well, where I was up against Craig Alexander to win that series. And, okay. And, I didn't know that was the first race of the. Yeah. I, so Minneapolis 07 was the last race of the 06 series. So those six went New York, LA, Chicago, and then finished with Minneapolis. So I, for 10 months before, I was so focused on winning Minneapolis, which I hadn't done before. Minneapolis wasn't really a, a course that suited me. 
but I was so heavily, and I knew that to win, if I could break, you know, if I could just sprint the run, then, you know, I could win it. And, and uh, fortunately for me, I did win it. But then I had to go to New York the next week. New York had been a good race for me and always was because it had the hills on the bike and the, the power to weight ratio on the, the bike and the run really suited me. So New York, I, I then got that win. But then I had to race Chicago as the third race, which Craig Walton had won a bunch of times. I think, have you won Chicago? Yeah, yeah. Did you win it? I won in 2009. Yeah. won. Yeah, so so all you guys had won it. Even Crowey had won it, and yep. I'd never won Chicago again. It was a bit like my Minneapolis. I just had done it so many times, but never won it. And and Craig Walton was just on fire in 07. That was built for him that course. Oh, it was so built for him. Yeah. It was just so powerful, fast. And anyway, I did end up catching him and 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 winning on that one. And when I beat him in Chicago, I was like, huh, maybe you know. But the amount of stress I started to feel though in that 07, you know. Can, can Greg win all five started kicking in but again I you know I was 07 I was 32 I was I was I was more adapted handling the the big time stress um but yeah actually in saying that doesn't it funny you know when you look at Alistair Brownlee with the kind of stress he must have had at London Olympics yeah in 2012 how old was he he was only 24 or something <laughs> But as we said earlier, he, he was they were just freaks. You know, we we spent most of our twenties trying to find out that we're good. They just oh, knew that yeah. in the beginning. They just I know, but they they still worked at it. Even oh, he no, said, no, you know, no, agreed. They, yeah. I mean, they're just remarkable. Those they're two. Hard. Sorry, yeah. Where, where was I? <laughs> anyway, yeah. So then then I went on to to do LA and LA triathlon in in 07 was took me through every emotion I ever thought I could have. I went there. Um, I'd won in 06, so I thought, oh, I, you know, I, I felt pretty good about it. Waldo ended up getting – I got off – that's right. I got into T2 with um, Nicole Hackett's brother, Steve Hackett. I can't even I, I think – who was behind us? I think Lessing might have been there, but he might have been injured or whatever. Um, but then – I got off the bike and, thought, and I heard from my, my sponsor. I said, how far? He said, three and a half minutes. Oh. So I was actually, oh, no. And then I had this moment where I was like, good, it's over. I've won the series, you know, but good, the pressure to win all five is over. I had this moment and then I snapped myself out of it, literally. It must have been like one second and just said, why not sprint and find out? And yeah. I just remember sprinting that run absolutely one of the greatest runs of my life hands down you just because you had to run up to the disney center from the staples um center and this run i don't know the percentages i said it was a 15 percent hill people can probably tell me downtown la and running up it but then letting myself go on the downhill just going if i fall on my face i fall but i have to go <laughs> just arms are flailing just dropping down this hill downhill better. And- i'll give you that <laughs> Best, best downhill runner in triathlon seven. <laughs> That's, that was the one gift I did get right. and uh, and then uh, and then finally I caught Waldo with about 200 meters to go and I was like great I got it and then I went to go around him and he he sprinted oh, no. I was like no no and uh, fortunately I, I, I ended up getting him by a few seconds at the end but and then it was to Dallas and, and and Dallas was funny. I didn't know how to approach it. I got injured. I went to Beijing to watch Laura qualify for the Olympics. Um, she qualified. We actually had a big party in Beijing. And I, after the fl- flight home, I got injured. My Achilles, I couldn't run for the five weeks leading into the final race in Dallas and didn't tell a soul. Flew down to see my, my chiropractor, Alex Keith, down here in Florida. He took me to the shooting range, believe it or not. 
and I was so scared of shooting a gun, I was petrified that it was actually almost the release I needed. It was like this psychologist could probably tell you more than I, but it was like, it really was more than just, I was sweating holding these big guns and shooting them in this firing range. But then I went back to Boulder and, and just was so much calmer about the whole thing, you know, turned up to Dallas, like I said earlier, Alex Keith and um, Camille Reagan, another chiropractor, both came to the, the room at 2am and started working on my body till four. And then I went down to the race. I didn't study the race at all, that one. I actually let it go. But then driving down to the start with everybody on the bus, I realized it was like a, a two-kilometer descent down to the lake. And I just said to myself, I can win this. Because I knew with two-kilometer climb coming out of the water, I knew I could bridge up to Waldo and, and some of these guys earlier on the bike than expected. And, uh, and that's what happened. And then I, I manu- managed to, to fake the run to some degree, ran the first 5K with everything I had and then blew to pieces but held on. And, and so that was a really incredible year. But what, what was mostly incredible about that wasn't the, wasn't the money. It was just simply having a year. Yes. Having a year that for 20 years previous I'd been striving for where physically, mentally, emotionally and the results, everything turned up. And Laura had a year too. She won high V and she qualified for the Olympics. So 07, we look back in our lives and we go, we weren't every year, we weren't Javier Gomez winning everything, but we did have 07. Yeah. And that was it. I think I won Dallas the same day you won your first Kona, right? Yeah, it was. Yes. I- yeah. We both had breakthroughs at the same time. <laughs> Far out. I know. I mean, it's it's funny you say that was your big year because I I it, it, I love so I love doing this conversation because I I see that was an amazing year you, but I wasn't around to see all those other races so for me hearing the whole stories about um, Los Angeles and and, uh, and and Dallas is remarkable because I only read about them and just oh Ben I won Ben I won the half a million wow bastard lucky bugger but yeah, I, they didn't have much television or or, yeah, <laughs> or yeah, online present. It's ironic you think that was your year because I think your 99 year was amazing. When, when you won Sydney World Cup, like, but and, and I just watching the runner following the ITU circuit from afar and then watching the runner you became, you became a runner, mate. Like, I, I used to sit there going, man, and that whole 06, 07, you know, 05, 06, 07 period, man, you were, you were the best runner on your day, you could outrun anyone, which was incredible like i because i always, like you said you're a big biker that needed a good solid bike but you always delivered a big run off a big bike you became a guy that didn't need the big bike if it was there i'll take it and i'll still outrun you and if it's not there i'll take that as well and i'll still outrun you like that oh, was, thanks mate. You were, it, it, that period of your life you were you got lean you, you know you used to be as younger you were a lot bigger a lot a lot a lot of a, a lot more stronger looking athlete you became leaned down you were very weight conscious you were you had that runner mentality and geez you, the way you ran like you said you surged you attacked you could do anything that would <laughs> take away from afar and I, I i was on the receiving end many times of, of that run power but the takeaway from afar was i was like wow benos is is the gold standard of running now in the sport Oh, thanks, mate. That, 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 you're blowing smoke up me, but I appreciate it. At that period in your life, I had, you- I had a good period there, and and a lot of it came down to us, like I said, taking control of the program. Um, I studied, I studied. When when Laura and I decided to go on our own in 05, 06, I just started studying the greats of old. Um, we realized science has its place in the new age, but Arthur Lydiard became my yeah, yeah. go-to. 
Arthur Lydiard from New Zealand, um, you know, I think is probably the greatest running coach of all time. And he coached, you know, the Finns. Um, Snell. What's it, what's it? Snell, he coached. Snell, Peter Snell. And then he went and, and helped the Finns do all their amazing stuff. And anyway, I started really, really doing a lot of Lydiard work. And Lydiard was a big believer in doing it. The way I would coin it is doing you – Easy work at best easy pace. So easy doesn't mean slow. And my staple, even during the middle of the year, races everywhere, was a 32-kilometer or a 20-mile run every Tuesday. Um, if I raced on the weekend, I'd move it to a Thursday. But basically, I did that every week for years. And that pace would just get lower and lower. And, and as the years went on, it got faster and faster. Like the... I would start the year sort of in 06. It might be start the year at 430K pace, you know, what's that, just under eight-minute mile type pace. And then throughout the year, I'd get it down to, you know, six-minute mile pace for the for the 20 miles. Yeah. As the years went on, by the time I was tra- training with Javier Gomez in sort of 2010 and we were in Noosa, Australia and in March, April, you know, now we're talking and, and this is the best. I've been doing it for years. He could turn up and just join me pretty much right away. But we were we were running that sort of 330 to 340K pace for our long easy range wow. run. So when it got to the point of running a 10K flat out, I was never scared. I, I knew I could sprint a 10K and not blow up. And, but that's, you know, that's yes. the kind of work that I was doing that, that got me to that. My limiting factor wasn't endurance or strength. It was simply how fast can my legs turn over, you know, and that's always what I wanted to do. I, I kind of was like, if you can run 1K in a 245 to 250, then you should be able to run 10K in a 250 to 255, yeah. you know, and that was it. I started doing running races. I was, you know, doing 29 sort of 30, which is now slow. By the way, when we look at this generation that are right, running right now, um, and nearly every guy I've had on the podcast from this latest generation yeah, have broken four, 14 minutes for 5K. Thirteens yeah, in front of their 5K time. <laughs> I mean, they're not just breaking it; they're they're smashing it. Yes, and that I I'm just blown. And they're not just doing that. I mean, Vincent Lewis, he's leading the swim out. This guy's holding 102s and 105s for the for the swim. Then at the end of the race, he's dropping a sub 14 minute 5k. I, it just blows my mind. <laughs> I, I, I am so appreciative of the, the talent time that era we had, you know, we got, and I think I mentioned it once. We, I feel like we all shared the wins pretty well. Yeah. You know, like you, me, Hamish, Miles, Greg Welsh, Brad Bevan, Simon Whitfield, the list goes on. Andrew Johns, everybody got a little taste. Yeah, yeah, uh, and and then all of a sudden, Brownlee and Gomez has come along, and we almost have a ten-year window where it's just those three winning races, and and now we're starting to see some new faces pop up in this last couple of years. Yeah. It's extraordinary. It, it really and, is. And and the and the depth, as you said, the 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 talent that's coming up. Like you think that's. I thought the Brownleys and and Gomez was the best we we're going to see, and then you see the next wave, the Vincent Louis. Oh. You're like, how can it keep going? What, are we going to see twelves in front of their 5K times? It's like far out. It's I just had uh, Gustav Eden on. Yeah. And and I've had Christian Blumenfeld, so the, the Norwegian clan that are just taking the world by storm. And now these guys are approaching the sport with their, their coach, Arild. I can't remember his family name. His coaches. But they, they get scientifically tested every six weeks. And 
they're in the lab, swim, bike, run, swim on a Friday, bike on a a Saturday, run on a Sunday, in the lab, testing, testing, testing. Gustav told me that his VO2 max now is 92. Far out. 92. Like I, I didn't get tested much in my career. I got tested once down in Canberra at 78. And because there's a bit of altitude, I guess we're allowed to bump that up a little bit. I don't know. But 92, I was like, I said, how much can how much can you you know fake you know you get tested so many times how much can you fake the numbers like do you you know do you, can you work the machine? He said, actually, we can do that, but the tester can see. He said, all you got to do is hold your breath for fifteen seconds. I'm like, well, hold your breath for fifteen seconds while you're doing a VO two max workout doesn't sound very easy either. But anyway, that's you know why you watch a race like we just saw these last few weeks ago, the PTO Championship in Daytona, where he kind of made it look like a jog. So, well, that's your next generation. You know, they're going to be retiring the next group. Yeah. <laughs> I've said I've said on this show how Brownleys and Gomez retired many of us. Um, yeah, you remember you remember our final races. Remember you were going to make a comeback for 2012 Olympics in in Kitzbühel. We both went to Kitzbühel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I got lapped. I, I, I was going to try and I was going to also try and go to 2012 Olympics as well. And I was, um, and I'd been doing short course. And uh, I, I remember swapping turns with Brownlee and he was Alistair. He was a young punk and he was abusing me, so I was abusing him back. <laughs> and then he still broke away from me at the end and then he did the fastest run, went like a 29-minute. And I came back to the hotel room and I said to Laura, mm, I think I'm going to go back to the States and do <laughs> non-drafting. And <laughs> <laughs> that was, it was remarkable. That was, oh. you know, remarkable. Remarkable. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean – and then he goes to tell me in his episode, you know, that he was studying a master's in finance as he was preparing for the London Olympic Games. Wow. I was like, God. <laughs> he's a special – he's a special athlete because as you touched on when you're talking about the fundamentals to high performance, you know, you're talking about team. He's got a great team around him. I think his brother and his family fill a big void there and, you know, he yeah, had yeah. his coach. But his mental strategies, I've never seen a guy so – you know, he gets himself to a point for his training that his belief in himself is unwavering. Like, it, and it must be when you can deliver what you can deliver in, in training, but but it's unwavering, and he, he, it's it's remarkable at times that when you speak to him as a friend, it comes off semi. Hey, man, that's a bit ar- not arrogant, but like you really think you can do that? Like, remember you've got Ian Fredino, all these other, you're like, yeah, yeah, I've got him. But it's it's remarkable to see that. Talent and mindset combined, that's why you get a champion such as Alistair Brownlee. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It's remarkable. I mean, he's been all in since he was eight. But this is what he wanted. Like, uh, And Johnny Johnny put it great when I said, you know, do you ever feel like you're in the, you know, a little bit in the shadow or, you know, feel like he said, Greg, without him, basically, you know, I wouldn't have a career. You know, everything I have is because of what Alistair has done. I want the best for him. And he wants, it's such a great relationship. It really is a, you know, they, they both really think highly of each other. And, and Alistair, definitely the older brother, you know, is tough on his younger brother, Johnny. But it's amazing how they've dragged each other up to the top of the world. But um, incredible. I, I'll touch on the other, the other, you know, we've gone through two, but I'll just quickly touch on the other five fundamentals. I believe in general health, which, yep. you know, in terms of, of staying, um, healthy throughout the year as an athlete is incredibly important. But these days I even I'm, – I'm far more of aware of it now for longevity and wanting to be around for my kids than I am, 
than I was probably as an athlete. I think as an athlete, you felt like you were bulletproof. But now I tend to, you know, I have a bit more of the supplement type of things. I have my continual G in the morning, my vitamin C and my vitamin D, um, you know, and then athletic greens later in the day and my multivitamins and all of that kind of stuff. I, I don't know about you, but I'm starting to be far more aware of supplementing. Um, that's probably more to do with Laura got me onto things more than me, but I, I just do what I'm told. But now I'm, and through this show and talking to everybody, I'm kind of learnt, learnt a lot. Um, yeah. Hot, cold therapy. Started doing a fair bit of that. Yeah. And uh, I just got, for Christmas, I just got this Shaki mat that, um, do you know Dan, Dr. Dan Plews? He, yep. uh, he trains to enter. Yeah. He was in Singapore for years, Dan. Yeah, lovely guy. And he said, Greg, get this Shakti mat. It'll help you relax before bed. So I just got that for Christmas. And that was all. I, I've been sleeping so well oh. since doing that. Yeah. Give it a go. Shak- How do you spell it's like it? A, it's a S-H-A-T-K-I S-H-A-T-K-I. mat. Okay, well. Especially like lying on a bed of nails. I don't know if you could handle it because you hate you hated all those needles. Remember drug testing? You'd yeah, always be. I, free. Don't, <laughs> I, don't yeah, I hate needles. Full stop. Yeah, I know. <laughs> so that's general health, and then body work and biomechanics. Well, that became for me, as we've said, our team of people just keeping us moving. I was I was seeing Marcus Mahias every afternoon there towards the end <laughs> and chiropractors once a week Chiro, okay chiro and physio how much of that is actual treatments versus uh you know when you build a team where do you relate the massage side do you consider that a treatment or is that more a recovery thing and you have your physios and chiros i i do both so the massage um it, it really would be to flush the legs out mostly on bike days so i could be ready for run days i didn't like massages a lot on run days i felt like my I, I felt like my body was too tight and it was too painful to get a massage on a hard run day. Whereas a bike day, it was just full of lactic acid. And I, so I, I, most bike days got a massage. Chiropractic work usually just once a week, depending on the chiropractor I was working with, they usually had a different kind of skill set. Um, and if I felt like I needed an adjustment, you start to know your body pretty well. Um, I, I started to grasp in my own body. I still do, which is like, you know, scraping, using all the different scraping tools. And then towards the end, definitely using um, a friend of ours, Christine Bell, Australian girl from Brisbane who lives in Boulder and did dry needling. And I found the dry needling, which you you would hate, but it, you get used to it. And boy, that that was incredible how well that worked. And these days I just use, you know, they sponsor the show, but I, I use them anyways, the, the hyperize stuff like the Hypervolt, some of those massage tools and, uh, yes. you know, Yep. Yeah, I, I use all of that stuff because that's I'm still trying to be a little bit fit these days. I'm just working out 45 minutes a day, and yep. one day is either heavy weights or it's doing running the next day. Um, although at Christmas, the day before Christmas Eve, there was a little 5K run around the community that we're in. And I tell you what, it's hard to run it. 180 pounds, 79 kilos. I, 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 I'd like to say it's all muscle, but it's probably not. And I ran an 18.30, which – Right. I and I, it was brutal. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you think about eighteen thirty. That's what I used to do for my long easy run on a Tuesday. You know, for 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 twenty miles for thirty two k. And you know, I can't even do that. So I, I think I'm going to back off the heavy weights a little bit, <laughs> just to get my running back. Remember, you said in your episode you were getting ready for a marathon. Obviously, it all got cancelled. Are you still looking at getting your running going, or how, what's your training yeah, like? I was. Now I just go. To, I do this F forty five with Emma. So. Ah. Yeah, that just came over here. Yeah. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. We do that every morning, uh, which is 45 minutes. It's quite easy. And then I run probably three times a week, just very, very light. I, f- I find running yeah. 
beats me up a little bit more. But I, I've always been that. I used to race at that 78, 79 kilos that you're talking. But you did not. You weren't 78, 79, were you? Always. Yeah, yeah. I won Kona. The lightest I ever won at Kona was 177 pounds. That was 2007. Even everyone thinks 2010 I was lighter. I actually was lighter in 2007. You've got, you've got a strong backside, don't you? You've got pretty big legs. I'm still all bumming. And now, now I'm older. I'm bum, legs, and gut. I've got a <laughs> – that's why F45 at the gym works. It's it's the curse of Polynesian blood. Yeah, I was going to say you do have that strong Polynesian yeah, blood. Yeah. You're built, you are built like a rugby player. A bit like you and I both could have been a decent rugby. If you were having – remember we used to even laugh about, I think, in the 90s, if you were to build a, a first 15 rugby team out of the Try. triathletes, who would you pick? <laughs> I think we had Andrew Johns in the second row. and Waldo, you remember, Waldo, we're going to start. Waldo would Waldo, be there for sure. Yeah. We had Chris Hill as our little hooker, which is yep. – a, a term for rugby people that don't understand it's position in rugby <laughs> um, yeah. yeah that's awesome i know you and i i think we would have been in the breakaways fly halves yeah totally probably well that was why i was saying anyway. before when i saw you become because you were always a, a a rugby looking not not quite rugby looking definitely a small rugby player but you were always a bigger triathlete uh, uh, and yeah. when those days when you built that run doing those 20 mile runs and getting that consistency i i sort of attributed a lot of it because you shifted to boulder at that point as well you went to altitude yeah. so I was yeah. Like, oh, yeah, the altitude helped yeah but you you really got lean you really looked took on that runner's physique and and you're able to maintain that bike strength and not lose that swimming consistency which is the balance we all try and find in triathlon when you fix one thing you, you tend to fade off, <laughs> but everything fr- it's frustrating, isn't it? Yeah. I remember before 2011, um, high V, and they made high V had always been draft legal, it was a world cup, and then they made it non drafting. and I got so excited about that. And, um, I remember studying the course firstly, and I was like, hang on, there's there's um, it's four laps of 22 corners a lap, and I was like, well, hang on, that's 88 corners. And Shimano had just come out with their electronic gearing, and um, I know uh, I, I was with uh, another company that wouldn't prepare to sponsor me earlier in the year, but they sent me some product. And so I was like, okay, I need to go buy the electronic shifting. So I put, went and bought the electronic shifting for my bike. So I would have the gears next to my brake hoods and in my aero position, which was, which was new at the time. And, uh, I need to improve my, my, uh, my bike cornering. If I can save half a second a corner over 88 corners, that's 44 free seconds. So I practice so hard on, on the cornering. Anyway, Got off the bike. Ben Collins had got a little gap on me, but I had sort of 50 seconds on the chases and and managed to hold off um, in, in high V. M- my point is with that story is leading into high V, you mentioned the altitude training we were doing with Boulder. Well, I actually got an altitude tent as well. Oh, wow. And so what I would do is, and I only did it this uh, towards the end of my career, and I'd hop in the altitude tent when I was already really fit. So I'd hop in usually around that end of July and I would sleep at 12,000 feet in the tent, then be training at that five and a half to 6,000 feet in Boulder. And that was just an extra stress layer that I would add on top before a key race, like a, like a high V at the end of the year. Um, and it was amazing how fit you could get. I mean, to the point it was borderline super fit. Or breaking down, right? So it really was a balance, and and I know for Laura, she ended up not being able to. She would do maybe three nights in and and two nights out kind of thing. But wow, it was amazing adding the altitude tent with the altitude of Boulder. Um, Did you do most of your training in Boulder down 
at at the bottom of the of the mountains, or did you get up in the mountains much? Or so you always? I did five and a half. No, I did a fair bit up. I did more up once all the short course racing disappeared, and I started to do a few seventy point threes and Ironman, and I did more. You know, some of the great runs up high, there's Switzerland Trail, there's yes. Rollinsville, which is a great trail. I love Rollinsville, did that one a bunch. Um, but I always trained too hard for Ironman. And what I mean by that, I trained too far. my paces for yeah. short course. Yeah, I was always too far. I remember Rinnie telling me, Greg, you're running too fast. I'm like, whatever, yeah. I can run this all day. And then uh, I realized, oh, it has something to do with fat metabolizing and all sorts of other things yeah. that I never, never had thought about that you guys had been learning, you know, over the years. And um, so a lot of my training, you know, the peak to peak highway and stuff in Boulder, uh, I really enjoyed doing that towards my end of my career, but my whole short course career, I never really left Boulder County hardly. Okay. I would, yeah. my bike would be a time trial every, every Thursday, no, every Saturday morning from Lyons up to Ward, up the St. Fran yep. Canyon, 36 kilometers. And I would time trial it every Saturday and it would basically be. Yeah, thirty-six kilometers, about four thousand feet of climbing, and uh, and I knew if I could time trial that well, I got it down to I think my record on that was about an hour twelve, but generally it was about an hour eighteen. So it depended if you had a tailwind, to be honest. Um, but I learned to ride that really hard, and that that that, that was that transferred really well to time trialing on, yep. on the, in in the races. So um, we, and we then doing, yeah, were you doing track mm-hmm. sessions a lot in Boulder? Like a or- mate, I didn't. I did after I left Brett Sutton. In in '99, I never went on the track again. Ah, good. That's good to know. I I, ne- I I I never went on the track, and I never went on the treadmill again. I all of my training went to fartlek, you know, change of speed type work on trails. Yeah. I just would find trails everywhere. I like to. Well, that's what fartlek means. Play playing with speed, yeah. as the Swedes would put it. It was. Uh, I learned to play, and that also helped me with my visualizing. Um, the track. You know, I did a little bit of track with Simon Whitfield in in uh, Victoria, and after he walloped me a fair bit on the track, I was like, eh, I don't need to do that. <laughs> so I never went. I never went back to the track. It was uh, basically my three key run workouts was a long run, which was number one. Yeah, that was always number one. Uh, a threshold run, which should be anywhere between that three and seven minute type efforts, and a two to one ratio, so three minute effort, ninety second recovery, or five minute, two and a half, whatever. And that was usually about race volume of, of work. So around that 30 to 35 minutes of work. Totally and then one the effort, effort side of things was the effort. Yeah. On the, on the, uh, the effort, the effort was always worth, you know, 30 to 35 minutes worth of effort. Yep. And so the recovery was half of that. And then, um, and then, and then a speed workout on a Thursday, um, which generally was one minute is, um, and, you know, but I would do often do too many of those. I, I was always about the volume. I'd do maybe 20 by one minute efforts and with 20, with one minute recovery. So speed was always one to one recovery and, and, and that's it. It was a basic, it was a basic template and then run every day. Um, and sometimes twice. And I kept my running volume over a hundred K to 120 K a week for probably about, yeah, seven, eight years. Um, don't get me wrong. There were weeks where it didn't, but je- that was always the goal: get over 100k a week. Um, and and I, I struggled. I got a few injuries along the way and overdid it, of course. But uh, and that's where I think having a coach that knows you really well and knows when to pull you back would have been a good thing. Yeah. Um, you know, I think I did. I still overdid it, even when I was 35, 36, 37. Um, in fact, I always had niggles. And I remember before the 2011 High V Championship race, and I remember running the week before. 
and going, nothing's hurting. Nothing's hurting. I was so excited. There was nothing hurting. My foot was hitting the ground. There wasn't any Achilles or knee or hip. Or I was like, wow. And that, that was always a first. I always had these niggling injuries all the time. But anyway, that's part of it. Um, but I, I just want to quickly, yeah. And the final bits to the, the seven fundamentals would be nutrition, uh, sleep and recovery. And then as we talked about physical training, um, you know, and that once Laura and I really started taking, really doing the most that we could on those things, that's when, when, when life started to, to happen for us. And, you know, that's why now, you know, talking to guests and sharing our kind of what worked for us has been so much fun fun this year you know with the show <laughs> huge mate. huge year who do you think i should have on the show um uh, sally fitzgibbon <laughs> i've reached out to her after i saw you doing photos with her um if you could put in a word for her, i'd yeah. love to have her on the show i'm a super fan of hers yeah she's well she's an, she's got an amazing running history you know she's yeah that's yeah. incredible incredible story i i remember seeing sal as a kid she used to run with a couple of the young Oh, this is how old we are, with a couple of my friends' kids, right? <laughs> <laughs> my older group of friends, not my our age, but my older group yeah. of kids. So I don't know if you remember Greg Hoare and and his his son. Yeah. His son's a very, very good runner at the moment. They're trying to get him into triathlon. Um Oliver. Oh, brilliant. Oliver. And um, but yeah, she was a like I think I'm gonna say she, I probably got it wrong, Sally. So if you're listening and she was the Australian fifteen hundred meter champion at school through school. She was she was going to go on either direction, surfing or or athletics. And I'll try. Oh. She picked the right one, I think. She's a fantastic surfer. But yeah, she, well, she's a good chance for Olympic gold. And yeah, when it happens now, yeah, she'd be fantastic. I'd love to get her on, mate. If you, I did write her. Just it's not very good when you write people on direct message on Instagram. But I, I did that the other week. Actually, I had her on mind for quite a while, and then I saw you doing a Breitling um, yeah, yeah. day with her. And I was like, oh, that's right. Yeah, I really do want to get her on the show. So, mate, anything you can do to have yeah, yeah. I'd, I'd love to do that. Yeah. Who else do you think? Who else do I like? Who else do I know? What other Aussies am I missing? There's so many great Aussies that are taking on the world that I'd, I'd love to, you know. Um, yeah, there's some amazing, enjoy. There's amazing stories. of. There's a girl I know, Orla Walsh, who's an Irish cyclist who has an incredible story because she's, she's going to make the, the Olympic team. But four years ago, she was a like a party girl. Like I mean, she she found cycling to get out of the party scene, and she's a fr- and she's unbelievable story. And she tells the story of of the similarities between hard training and and wrecking yourself in a nightclub, and the same sort of, <laughs> same sort of damage as you can do, except the training, <laughs> the athlete side of things is is um, it's a much healthier lifestyle. And she's so glad she found it, but she found it by fluke and. Brilliant. How do you spell her name? Ola? Ola. O-L-O-R-L-A. Walsh. W-A-L-S-H. Yeah. Yeah. She, yeah, yeah. She's there on Instagram. She's hundreds of thousands of followers, but she's a, she's now the Irish fourth Irish track champion on the bike, the bit, Irish sprint champion. She's incredible. Like I'm like, That's awesome. Oh, I just met her by chance in Mallorca. I was chatting. I'm like, how did you get, how did you find out you had it? She's like, I didn't. I just started riding to work, trying to get it active and, and then started doing some bike races locally and was just sticking. And a guy said, you're a pretty good bike rider. She's like, me? You know, it's just it's some incredible stories of athletes like that that have that have got amazing. That's what I love. Yeah, there's I a love young, young Australian boxer called Sky Nicholson. She's a um, Commonwealth Games gold medalist um, for boxing. And she's like, she, she, could, she was a model. And you're like, how is the contrast of being a, oh. and a boxer? And she's like, yeah, look, I grew up with brothers and – 
and uh, we boxed. And now, you know, she said I, she could win an Olympic gold medal for Australia. She's one of the favourites to win the, the Olympics. Like, there's some amazing athletes like that, Greg, yeah. that yeah. have incredible stories that have that are you know you just you see it on social media or you hear about them, but um, it'd be fantastic guests. Yeah, see, this is the whole thing. Like when everybody, everybody's like, oh, you've already done all the, you know, I'm like, man, there's just so many more people out there doing incredible things. There's high performers all around the world. And, you know, I, I, I did enjoy the episode with Dan McPherson, a friend, a yeah. friend of both of ours, an entertainer in the Hollywood. And I was fascinated how they deal with rejection, you know, and, and, and the mindset that they have to have, you know, the belief in themselves and the confidence that they all have. Um, but also his ability to then ground himself after being in a role for, for, for so, so long. So I'd like to get some of those, you know, yeah. more entertainers on because I think it's fascinating, their, their world, because it's, it's one that I have no clue about too. So you're always just going, oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. yeah, for sure. Yeah, for sure. Mate, yeah. mate this has been brilliant. Chris, thanks for coming on, Macca. Oh, yeah, it's nice to have a chat. It's good to catch up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's basically it feels like that sometimes, doesn't it? You just chat for a couple of hours and, and like, oh yeah, we'll record it. There we go. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, I was nervous, you know, doing this for doing this with you. I was a little no, no, no. You did, you did fantastic. I, I really appreciate it, and uh, you know, I'll, I'll definitely make sure people realize that this podcast is uh, this episode is primarily about me so if you don't want to know about me just don't listen to it you don't need to be saying gee greg rabbit's on about himself a lot well the whole about point was <laughs> greg yeah <laughs> mate thanks again for coming on especially during this busy time of year i know you got kids and family and everybody there so it's just been wonderful to have you and um you know i know i've rabbited on about myself a lot but i really appreciate it um so thanks mate absolute pleasure to eat yeah all right, everybody else, uh, thanks for listening to me rabbit on. Uh, you can go to bennettendurance.com uh, forward slash podcast, actually forward slash media, excuse me, for the show notes, timestamps, coupon codes, and links. Um, and thanks again, Chris. Thanks a lot for listening to Be With Champions. If you enjoyed the show, your support would truly be appreciated. You can visit the Be With Champions Patreon page or you can subscribe with your podcast app of choice. Don't miss the next episode, so subscribe and be notified. For show notes, if you want to know more, please visit bennettendurance.com. I'm Phil Liggett, and on behalf of Greg Bennett, here's to the next time, and I hope you will join Greg again very soon.